Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. You can find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. And we ask you to subscribe to our feed for new episodes through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Or you can go right to nationalreview.com, click on podcast. You'll find all the fine NR podcasts, including Political Beats. Listen, enjoy, share, and also please leave reviews as well. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, is Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? I have to say I'm doing pretty good. Uh, it's very good to get the band back together after such a long layoff. I have to say I'm also really grateful to you for allowing me back into the <laughs> the, the show. I'm um, just sorry about the overdoses. Yes, we had a meeting and determined you could come back in, but that this will be our final show. Um, yes. So, uh, not, not really. Uh, at Esoteric CD on Twitter is where to find Jeff. And our guest for today's program, a return guest. He is the executive editor at The American Mind. He's the author of The Art of Being Free. And he's also the lead singer and songwriter for Vast Asteroid. He's James Polis. James, thanks for joining us again. Hi, guys. Good of you to come back after we talked uh, the Eagles on your first go-around. Way back when I looked today, that was actually episode six. That was so long ago. We hardly knew what we were doing way back then. We were but children. <laughs> so I used to be a little boy. And, and more innocent time. Yes, yeah. indeed. James, as we get started, we uh, we like to, uh, to hand things over to you. First, tell us a little bit about uh, what you do over at the American Mind and, and, uh, and your other activities. Uh, well, um, along with uh, Matt Peterson, who's our editor, I run the American Mind website, uh, which is your your place on the internet to um, to engage with the ideas that drive the political debate in the these United States of America. Uh, we are a weekly publication, which means uh, we are not um, those those crazy. Uh, clickbait-chasing psychos who have to be very online every single day of their lives until death. Uh, but it means that we have uh, a, a nice, steady stream of, uh, of content for you uh, throughout the week, um, and sometimes even over the weekend. Uh, audio, visual, and good old-fashioned text, alphabetic uh, prose. Um, so that's that's what I'm doing out here in scenic Claremont, California. Uh, in my infinite spare time, um, I do make music uh, with some uh, co-conspirators under the name Vast Asteroid, uh, and uh, you know um, we can we can get into influences and sort of uh, musical coming of age and all that. But uh, I should make it clear up front that um, I've only I've only f- avoided introducing myself to one celebrity uh, in my life, I knew that I would just stand in front of this person and stammer like a fool and retreat back into the darkness. And that person is William Corgan. So, uh, So I think this man is a genius. I have a lot of respect for him and a deep personal love for his music. And that leads us, of course, to tell you about our band today, which is, in fact, Smashing Pumpkins, led by the William Corgan aforementioned. 
Billy Corgan and uh, uh, and Smashing Pumpkins from Chicago, I guess, uh, would be under the alternative rock banner and probably lumped in many times with the grunge movement, but uh, but not not quite as we'll experience and discuss through this show today. Uh, they were a band, and then they broke up, then they reunited with different members, and now they're three-quarters reunited uh, at most recent check and still making music today. Smashing Pumpkins, the featured band on Political Beach today. We, we go back to James for, for him to tell us why you love Smashing Pumpkins so much, how you first got into them, and why other people should care about this music. James? Uh... In the, the mid to late 90s, music mattered to almost everyone on some level in a way that it just doesn't anymore. Um, to be a successful public musician, a writer, recorder, and performer of original music uh, was to be at the forefront of public life um, in a in a tremendously charismatic and relevant and meaningful and powerful way. Um, and this was true across genres of music, of course. Uh, and so, if you found yourself um, caring at all about music, even as a casual listener um, during that decade, uh, despite the fact that there was much crap music floating around um, in the way that, you know, excellence in any field brings a sort of a wake of garbage um, along with it. Uh, It was impossible for you not to encounter over and over again in the course of your everyday life great musicians, artists, pushing themselves and their genres and music and creativity um, in uncharted directions, plowing new ground, uh, pushing their, um, their personas, personae, if you will, uh, their um, skills, their, um, their concepts of what music was and their relationship with their audience and the relationship between art and the world big, intense, overpowering, eternal themes and packaging all that stuff down into, you know, two to six minute songs, songs that would explode onto the scene, radio, television, movies, live shows, live performances, world tours, um, iconography that would show up at school, you know, college uh, radio stations, binders, hmm. um, T-shirts. It saturated the culture. It defined the culture, and you could you could experience, you know, the best sort of auteurs of hip hop side by side with the best auteurs of, um, you know, five or six or seven different kinds of guitar-based music, and with you know the same thing going on on the electronic scene just starting to, to percolate, hit the mainstream. Um, that was a very intense time to be alive, and it was, you know, before digital sort of shattered all of these illusions that people had about, you know, their unique creativity as a person. Um, 
and at the very forefront of that time and that movement, there were a handful of individuals. And many of those individuals uh, were concentrated in California, specifically in Los Angeles. Um, by the time the millennium rolled around, you know, residents of L.A. included Rivers Cuomo, uh, Trent Reznor, Beck, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Marilyn Manson. Uh, it was a long list of, you know, chart-topping, I guess you would say, but culturally very influential um, guitar musicians. Uh, at the same time, right, that sort of West Coast hip-hop was doing its own sort of, I don't know if, you know, you can argue about whether it's the Golden Age or Silver Age, whatever. I'm not going to walk into that minefield. <laughs> the point is, right, um, this tremendous concentration of talent and vision and given huge budgets, Yes, do more, make more, bigger, longer, uncut, that people can get enough. Uh, there is one figure um, who towered over that scene uh, who is not a Californian, but was not British. And that made this person quite unique. Um, and that was Billy. He could play his guitar as well or better than any other guitar frontman. Um, he could write better songs than the competition. Uh, he could write more songs than the competition, for <laughs> sure. And he could tyrannize a band better than the competition. was little Mussolini <laughs> bald and all bend <laughs> bend it to not just his will although to be sure he did that but but compel this band to realize a vision that seemed to grow deeper and wider and more all-consuming with every year that passed from the pumpkins origins in I you know I guess the late 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 80s right and early 90s all the way up through basically the day where Billy sat down with Rolling Stone and said Britney Spears is a thing now I'm breaking up smashing pumpkins 
um, that's an inc- that was an incredible run at an incredible time and did not result in his demise. It almost killed Jimmy Chamberlain, <laughs> arguably the greatest rock drummer of all time, arguably. <laughs> and it definitely killed at least one other member of the touring band. And it definitely killed at least one other member of the touring band. And that didn't even kill the band. <laughs> it takes a person of, of immense artistic force and integrity to be able to achieve what Billy Corgan achieved with that band as an individual. And during it all, running side hustles like writing half of Celebrity Skin, the most (laughs) iconic whole record, like hanging out in the studio while Manson was doing Mechanical Animals and basically unofficially producing that record next to uh, Beinhorn, like cutting an entire record of Total Weirdness with Rick Ocasek, and on and on it goes. Um, so that's, you know, that's just sort of like the setting the table, you know, and then you get into the songs and you get into the subject matter and you get into the way that the pumpkins became uh, the sort of mythic poets of suburbia um, in a way that was not at all, um, you know, cheap, contrived in a negative sense uh, that was not, you know, uh, nihilistic. This is not like My Chemical Romance what they did to suburbia, you know, the way that they sort of uh, uh, became an expression of a, of a suburban sort of id. Um, pumpkins managed to do it in a way that was dark, but not, um, but not depressing. Uh, and that could also be very bright and very um, suffused with love, but that never became cloying or... Um, unserious uh you know i just i find that all to be like a remarkable achievement um that that rewards attention um to this day and you know will probably i i would hope continue to to captivate people in a way that you know some of my favorite bands at that time you know such as radiohead for example may not end up doing Ah, I don't know about that. Can I say something, though, James? Here's the thing. I have to confess that when I was younger, when I was in high school and middle school, I was not a Smashing Pumpkins fan. Not at all. And in fact, it got to the point where I was sort of like tribally against them, opposed to them, as I felt like I had to be. Uh, My brother was actually the big Smashing Pumpkins fan in our family. So we had all those albums, everything up through Melancholy in our house. And I heard them, didn't like focus deeply on them, but I sort of set them aside. Uh, Why? Because when you're young and sometimes maybe you're a little unsure of yourself and your own tastes, where you stand on these things, you're afraid to like something that's uncool. And this is the other thing that can never be forgotten. No matter how many records the Smashing Pumpkins sold back in the 1990s, and no matter how much the work stands up to this day, and believe me, I come around on them, this work really stands up. They were never cool. It is hilarious to go back and see like how much Steve Albini, for example, hated them. And like, you know, like the Chicago press hated them. Oh, they're careerists. Oh, they're tryhards. For the, some of the stupidest imaginable reasons. Right now, it's, it's like a, ridiculous to go back and listen to these albums. And 
listen to the way Corgan explains the songs and listen to the, you know, and read about the path of their career and see, like, why did people want to hate this band? I mean, I get that Billy Corgan is probably a bit of an abrasive jerk back in the day. I met him, actually. I met him, actually, at a Dinosaur Junior concert in 2017 by accident. <laughs> he, was, he was just there to see the band, and I was like, hey, you know, good stuff. He was a nice guy. I didn't bother him. I'm sure that back in, like, 1994, he was a megalomaniacal little tyrant. Um, I think, you know, the results kind of speak for themselves. But I was told that I had to hate them, and so I hated them. Um, stupid. But, you know, you just have to sort of come to terms with the fact that once when you were a young kid, you were taking your marching orders from somebody else sometimes. I've come back to them now, and I think what strikes me the most about them is how little they sound like the rest of what I always associated generically as grunge. They, they, they're, they're looped into that, that bag of grunge or alt-rock or whatever you want to call it, but they really are their own thing. I mean, they're their own thing in that way that they're, they're a fusion of so many different sounds. So I was thinking to myself today, I was like, well, how would I describe Smashing Pumpkins to somebody who never really heard them, or maybe only just heard like the few radio hits? And I was thinking, okay, imagine there's a clown car that's filled with My Bloody Valentine, uh, Kevin Shields and his friends, that suffers a comical head-on collision with a clown car filled with all the members of The Cure. And while they're extracting themselves from the wreckage, they accidentally get steamrolled and sucked up into the wheel hubs of the Guns N' Roses tour bus from Use Your Illusion 2. <laughs> that era, that three-pronged description actually does for me the best job of trying to explain sonically sonically in terms of the My Bloody Valentine guitar-layered approach, sort of lyrically and also dreamily in terms of that cure pop approach, but also kind of like, you know, crazy ambitiously, like just go for it all, maybe go over the top and, and have no regrets about trying to be as big as you possibly can. That was always like, you know, you know 90s era Guns N' Roses. That's this band. <laughs> Maybe, you know, at some point you could say that the bus ends up picking up like, you know, you know, Rick Nielsen hitchhiking on the way to Rockford or something like that, you know, and, and you got a little cheap trick, you know, going on in that in that band sound too every now and then. But this is a band whose sound, it doesn't sound when you go back and you listen to these records, you hear people that ended up trying to imitate this, but it doesn't sound like, you know, maybe Gish, the first album. I'll say, okay, I hear a lot of Dinosaur Jr. in that. All right. I hear a lot of, you know, um, yeah, you know, I hear a lot of other, you know, other earlier 80s acts like 
meat puppets and, and Husker Du and stuff like that. Uh, but from Siamese Dream onwards, Billy Corgan actually had a real sense of what it is he wanted to do. Now, it wasn't perfect. You know, the biggest flaw of Smashing Pumpkins is that Billy, bless his heart, could never shut up. <laughs> he, he went on for way too long. Every one of these albums is a... a very self-indulgent length. I think you get, the, you get the feeling he asked, okay, exactly how much can I fit on this one CD? And then said, okay, we'll go up, up to that exact that length. That's how long this album's going to be. Exactly. Like the first album was 45 minutes long. That's reasonable. That fits on vinyl. And then everything after that, these are all like this whole era of CD making, I think, was kind of, you know, an artistic problem for a lot of these bands and these artists because the CD lengths encourage you to throw everything on when there might have been something to be said for some more judicious editing. But the, the sheer amount of material that he came up with is staggering. You have these reissues that came out several years ago, two CD, three CD, five CD, geez, I think door is like a or the airplane flies high as an eight cd set it's like six hours long now <laughs> there's so much material out there and corgan apparently says that there's like oh there's even hours more in the vaults and they give away stuff on like free bonus discs and tapes that isn't even included you could go crazy trying to listen to everything that smashing pumpkins has ever officially released it would take you over 48 straight actual man hours to do it that's how prolific they are as a band that sometimes plays against them uh, but what doesn't play against them is that ambition uh corrigan is uh, I, I wouldn't call it outsider art because it's not like outsider art usually carries along with it a connotation of being kind of kludgy and like not having the skills or the tools to properly execute your conceits billy corrigan if there's one thing you can say about this guy is that he knew how to produce he knew how to layer guitars he knew exactly how to work something to death until he got it to sound exactly the way he wanted to sound it but in a different sense the smashing pumpkins were the quintessential outsider band of the 1990s precisely because they didn't come from new york they didn't come from los angeles they came from chicago they came from the city by the lake where nobody else was really coming from uh, except you know apparently steve albini who wouldn't give him the time of day and i guess liz <laughs> fair who, who steve albini also hated um instead they went and they did out their own thing and they made it bigger than any of those other bands ever made it they made it before nirvana gish was a huge hit before nevermind broke out big and only then after that did they come out with siamese dream and then explode into one of the biggest bands on the planet they did it their own way and that's the kind of thing that you come back as an adult and you listen to about this band and you really learn to appreciate well, I'm okay sliding into the albums here, guys. Yeah. I can add some thoughts. Uh, I, I'll tell you in a bit about my... I, I remember the very first time I heard Smashing Pumpkins. I'll tell you that in a little bit. But sure. uh, we can start first with the debut, which uh, which Jeff just mentioned, 1991's Gish. And to just give you an, uh, an idea, look, it's produced by Butch Vig, which was right around the same time he was producing Nevermind. This is released three months before 10 from Pearl Jam and four months before Nevermind from Nirvana and five months before Soundgarden's Bad Motor Finger. So th there is uh, a lot happening on the old rock and roll scene at the time that Gish is, is released back in 1991. And uh, I, I, will let, uh, I will let James introduce us to this very first album from Smashing Pumpkins. Psych rock, baby. So the uh, the drummer of of Vast Asteroid, uh, his name is Mark, and uh, <clears throat> Mark has, is the kind of guy who's who's seen every band, and seen every band on their first tour, and been front row in every band's first show of their first tour. And Mark is convinced that Gish is the the best Smashing Pumpkins record that it can never be topped. <laughs> um, 
you know, he was as a drummer standing there seeing uh, seeing Jimmy uh, on stage. You know, really like their first time out and thinking, I need to quit the drums because I will never, <laughs> I will never be able to attain. You know, I'm just out of shame at the limit at my limit at the fact that I that a human being can perform at this level. I should consider not being a musician anymore. Hey, just to be um, clear for the folks who are listening, we're talking about Jimmy Chamberlain, who is the drummer for Smashing yeah. Pumpkins, the band. I, we never even intro them. You know Billy Corgan. Obviously, he plays guitars. Well, actually, on the albums, he plays almost everything except percussion. And then there's Darcy Retsky, who's the bassist. And then there's James Eha, who's the second guitarist. But Jimmy Chamberlain, as you know, James's James's uh, bandmate is going to point out. I would agree. He's the maybe maybe the most powerful instrumental force in this entire group. So even at that moment, 1991, uh, Jimmy Chamberlain comes to us fully formed, which is remarkable in and of itself. Uh, <clears throat> but in the Gish era, what is also fully formed is the, the internal dynamics of the band. So uh, as Mark recounts the story, uh, they play this incredible set. Uh, they're about halfway into it. The crowd is just completely enraptured. Um, and they launch into a song off of Gish that begins with a, you know, a, a pretty soft and slow and melodic and in some vague way sort of not exactly what you would think of as being right on the beat bass line. And so, you know, Darcy, dun, 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 and she makes it through about two bars of the bass line intro. And here's Billy. Stop, no, no, stop the song. No, that's not right. And everyone's like, what's going on? And he just kills it. And he walks over, this, this crosses the stage to Darcy with the entire crowd sort of staring there going, oh, my God. And he goes, it goes like this. And he's, like, talking to the mic. It goes like this. And he goes, dun, 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 dun. And Darcy's, like, already, you know, it's 1991. She's already being humiliated on stage by Billy, like, first record out. And she's like, okay. And he's like, all right, start again. And and so they start the song again. And it, like, is correct to Billy's specifications. But you can just tell that he is, like, rippling with rate like he's more humiliated than she is right and he just completely reduced her to ash but they make it through the song and so they finish the song and like billy's like still pissed off and the crowd's sort of like yeah and like they're trying to get back into the show and now the job becomes okay how does like irate billy finish the set without like <laughs> melting down and so, sure enough, like, over the course of the rest of the set, they're, like, climbing this mountain of, like, fury and intensity. And by the end of the show, they've pulled everyone back in, but it's like this, you know, this imploding star of rage, right? And so they finish the show. Jimmy hits the, the final crash, and Billy grabs his guitar by the neck and swings it like a battle axe and just decapitates the mic stand. <laughs> <laughs> and drops the guitar and walks off stage. And the mic stand passes within about two inches of Mark's nose. <laughs> he, nearly, he nearly killed one of his biggest fans. <laughs> Almost sending him directly to the hospital, probably disfigured for life. And I mean, so I Mark is like, my takeaway from the show was, I will never be as good of a drummer as Jimmy Chamberlain, and Billy Corgan is the biggest 
one planet Earth. <laughs> and and uh, both of those probably true. <laughs> yeah. I mean the, the thing about the thing about Gish is an album. I don't dislike it. It's it's actually perfectly fine to listen to. Um, it, it shows its influences pretty well. But I kind of agree with Corgan's take on it that like there aren't a lot of great songs on it. There's just a lot of great grooves and rumbles and mm-hmm. riffs. But there are there isn't. I mean there are are there any big hooks on this record? I mean I am one has that big drum opening. Okay, yep. that's not a riff. That's just Jimmy Chamberlain doing his Jimmy Chamberlain thing. I think Rhinoceros is also pretty good. Um, but it's weird when I tell you that the, the song I like the most on it is the one that Darcy sings. It's called Daydream. Uh, it's the um, it's the one that's just such an obvious steal from um, from My Bloody Valentine. It, it's totally patterned off of a My Bloody Valentine song called Lose My Breath that's off of Isn't Anything, their 1988 record. Same exact style, the, the very ghostly acoustic guitars and then that light, airy, breathy voice singing, the female voice. Um, that, that works. I think none of these songs are bad. Maybe Tristessa, if you're going for another hard rock song, I think that one really comes off as a nice groove. But uh, the this is a sonic phenomenon. This is a sonic album. You listen to this for like, oh, I like the way these guitars sound. I love the way that this 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 guy on the drums hits them. But I don't hear a bunch of hooks in these songs yet, which is exactly what is going to happen uh, immediately after this record comes out. I don't know how you guys feel. Uh, yeah, so this is interesting. So, you know, what you, you get so much of the band totally already fully formed as it is and always, you know, always shall be. Um, what don't you get? What isn't there yet? And what isn't there yet is, is Billy Corgan, the, the songwriting frontman rock star. What you have is a guy with, like, some shaggy hair, <laughs> and he's kind of a hippie. And, you know, he's basically dropping acid and sitting around in his house and smoking weed and writing songs like A Girl Called Sandoz, Sandoz being the Swiss laboratory where LSD was synthesized. There were two locations in the world that made LSD. One was that one. The other one was in Prague. The KGB got the Prague facility. The CIA got the Sandoz facility. And after a couple of years, CIA said, uh, acid, we're out. KGB never got out of the acid business. So all the acid that flowed into, like, London in the 60s and came to California, like, all the British invasion acid, all of the California freak happening acid, that was all KGB acid. I don't know if Billy Corgan knows this, but I do know that he knows enough about acid to write a song called A Girl Called Sandoz that's basically about doing acid. And that is the, the Billy of the early 1990s. Now, I have never tried to write a song on acid. I will probably never try to write a song on acid. But from what I can gather, it's probably not going to result in hits. <laughs> it's probably going to result in some long grooves where all of the sort of, you know, ear candy are transitions and layers and fills and, you know, sort of repetitive hooks. It's that kind of music. It's that kind of record. And that's the ability that you have.
the ability that, you know, that I sort of look to the way, you know, Camille Paglia looks to Keith Richards, <laughs> right? That Billy has not yet emerged, um, and I'm looking forward to, to talking about him. Yeah, the, the real distinction or distinctive songwriting isn't there quite yet. And Jeff identified probably the two songs that I would highlight. I Am One, which is the, the lead-off track, and yes, from, from the very first few seconds, you can tell how good Jimmy Chamberlain is and how big of a role he's going to play on, on future albums. You also have on I Am One, again, the sort of uh, this, the, the squealing guitar, little Brian May, little Dave Navarro, uh, that, that, uh, that Billy Corgan plays in some of the solos on I Am One. Rhinoceros is six and a half minutes. Smashing Pumpkins are not a band afraid of getting lengthy with some of their music, but I think Rhinoceros works very well as sort of the psychedelic ballad with a very slow build, slow and heavy and dreamy all at once. Um, and, and that one gets pulled off very well. slower ones. I think, I think Crush is pretty good. Uh, that sort of rippling guitar tone from, from Corgan. And as I think uh, Jeff had mentioned, you know, he, he's playing virtually everything except for the drums on Gish. It's, it's, it's Billy Corgan playing essentially everything. Uh, fairly big bass sound on a, a number of the tracks, uh, but, but yet to be distinctive, I think, is the way I would best describe Gish. A very good debut, but 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 it's not it doesn't have the, the the Smashing Pumpkins sound. I think that we we kind of think of when we think of the band. Yeah. So my question is: Are, are you guys like me, and, and you were always really disappointed that My Bloody Valentine met, never made a true follow up to Loveless, their their classic 1991 album? Well, uh, good news because Billy Corgan did. 
he did it with the Smashing Pumpkins, and he did it on Siamese Dream, which, you know, I've already referenced this band a couple of times. I'm sh- I'd love to believe that everybody listening to this show is already familiar with them. Uh, but this, this is the true example of, like, one guy working crazily intensely in a studio for months and months and months just overdubbing guitars 10 guitars 20 guitars 40 guitars how was that sound made that sound was made with a guitar this is that album for smashing pumpkins and this of course is their huge breakthrough album their most famous album probably it's the album that has that you know what's the first song that you think of when you think of smashing pumpkins well there are a couple candidates but probably it might be disarm and of course the funny thing about disarm is that you know you could put that on uh, loveless right after sometimes and you would be like okay same thing only shallow you know quiet has a feeling of feed me with your kiss but the difference is is that now corgan is writing songs and not only songs but he's working incredibly hard on dynamics this is the first truly dynamic smashing pumpkins album not just in a simple pixies loud soft loud type of a way but he does things like uh, to me, like the secret, maybe it's not a secret to real Smashing Pumpkins fans, but for me, the best song on this album secretly is Hummer, all right, which is this very long, violent guitar rocker. And it's that moment near the end where all those raucous guitars just drop out. And there's Billy Corgan floating alone, playing these spacey little notes with Jimmy Chamberlain just thumping along quietly behind him. That is the defining moment of this album. That's the defining ethos behind what it was that he was going for with this. And of course, this is the album that made them bigger than uh, basically any other band in the United States other than Pearl Jam at the time. So what do you guys say about Siamese Dream? Is it, is it the, the height of the Smashing Pumpkins abilities or is it wildly overrated? So let me, uh, I'll say what I have to say and then I'll, I'll get out of the way because, well, first of all, uh, the first time I ever heard Smashing Pumpkins ever was at an eighth grade dance. And uh, my, my, I was deep into my classic rock phase at that point, so I wasn't listening to a, a ton of new music. And even though these guys were from Chicago, I had not heard Smashing Pumpkins yet. And today comes on at the dance, and my friends are like, yeah, Smashing Pumpkins is today. I'm like, I have never heard this before. What is this? They're like, it's Smashing Pumpkins. What are you kidding? I'm like, I've never heard this before. So that's my, that was my first exposure to Smashing Pumpkins. The way Jeff sort of dismissed or pushed aside Smashing Pumpkins for some time, I did as well, and it's largely because of this album. There are a number of songs here that would become hits that I simply don't like, Um, and today is one of them. I I didn't like today when it was uh, a a hit. I still don't love it today. 
um, the, the, those massively overdubbed guitar sounds, the drones on like Rocket and, and then like Hummer, uh, like Jeff was talking about, that I don't love. I didn't like Disarm when it was a single. Um, and so for that reason, I kept Smashing Pumpkins at arm's length for quite a long time. And even going back now... And listening to Siamese Dream, again, we try to do this with, or I try to do it with all the bands and the albums with, with fresh ears and, and what did I miss or did I, did I miss here? Do I want to listen to it again? I still don't think Siamese Dream is anywhere near uh, the best Smashing Pumpkins album. Uh, and that said, there are some things I like. There's always going to be that Cherub Rock. Look, first song, first minute of Cherub Rock is awesome. Um, you know, that rat-a-tat open that eventually sort of releases in this dramatic, heavy, heavy, like a Bob Rock-sounding drums of Chamberlain on, on Cherub Rock. That is a great song. I like the the acoustic Space Boy later on with Billy Corgan playing Mellotron. This very dreamy, pretty song. I like that quite a bit. Um, but the songs that people know from Siamese Dream largely uh, today, Rocket and Disarm. Not only did I not like those songs, but they put me off of the band for quite a while, which is unfortunate. Um but again, still listening back here, I, I think Siamese Dream, while it, while it broke them big and was massive, um, it's not my favorite. And I would say it's it's among the overrated um, uh, uh, pieces of their, of their catalog. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, for me, Siamese Dream is, <clears throat> is a transitional record. Um, the comparison that I always think of is for a very brief moment uh, in the early 90s, uh, the Pumpkins and the Verve were both on Hut Records, a, uh, a, an indie-ish label um, in London. And when you, you know, do a side-by-side between Gish and uh, Storm in Heaven, that early Verve record, you will see that there are similarities, and some of the similarities have to do with the fact that this is like, you know, um, acid sort of jam music. Um, and watching the way that Richard Ashcroft of The Verve and Billy Corgan sort of came of age right around the same time, 95, 96, um, and made this big left turn into writing real songs, like big hits, um, which, you know, filled up urban hymns for, um, for The Verve and which filled up um, Siamese Dream for the Pumpkins. Uh, you'll see some similarities there, but for me, you know, Siamese Dream, uh, unlike Urban Hymns, is is about uh, is about uh, uh, a musician 
discovering how they could be a man and in some strange sense a hero suddenly billy corgan is writing about himself disarm is writing about his relationship with his father um today you know seems like a pop song sort of but he's singing like pink ribbon scars will never forget you know there's like you were definitely leveling up here not just in terms of musical composition but in terms of you know lyrical content and then the openness of the songwriter to the audience at a time when and in a very you know this is a choice to open yourself up to the audience as your audience is suddenly going to expand in a major way is a huge risk and the way that Billy Corgan and Smashing Pumpkins presented him to that audience um, you know this is not quite coming to full flower as we will see as we get into the next record in line here but I found Corgan to be much more relatable than like a Kurt Cobain or even an Eddie Vedder who are you know clearly grunge guys they were, you know, they were, I mean, I, from the beginning for me, like listening to Nirvana and looking at Kurt Cobain, I, my instinctive reaction was there's something wrong with this guy. Hmm. Like, there's just something wrong with this guy. You know, like I can't, this is not, he's not really speaking to me. Whereas, you know, as Billy began to become much more of a self-referential, a confessional songwriter, um, but also someone who was interested in, um, in 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 representing a certain kind of audience, um, in representing um, a certain kind of maturation, uh, a maturation into manhood, you know, that wasn't like I'm going to just become a punk and hate everything, and it wasn't like you know I'm going to become. Yeah, I, I wouldn't even know how to begin to describe how Eddie Vedder chose to mature, but you know, like there's no Jeremy on. Siamese Dream, and there's no Jeremy on any Smashing Pumpkins record, and God willing, there never will be, right? That is decidedly not the way that Billy Corgan wants to do being a rock star, being a grown man who is commanding your attention on stage through music. Um, definitely not taking the, uh, the Eddie Vedder path. Uh, and so... Um, you know, musically, the songs get more muscular, but they also get more focused. But at the same time, the lyrics are becoming suddenly much more vulnerable and yet much more powerful. Um, even just the way they're mixed, you know, like with every record, the vocal mix of Corgan's voice becomes more pronounced and what he has to say becomes more pronounced. And the uncompromising nature of 
his music and leadership of the band starts carrying over into the stories that he has to tell and the things that he has to say and the messages that he's trying to get across using this platform that he's created for himself. Um, and it has balls in a way that, you know, contemporaries of his just didn't have. And I think as we head into the rest of the catalog and into the 90s, that becomes, at least it became for me, ever, ever more important. I think the other thing to say is that this is the album where I think James Eha, I guess, his two best co-writes. Uh, those are both, uh, one of them is Soma, which is this very long, dreamy Eha riff, where it's actually kind of funny because you can immediately hear the part where like Billy Corgan takes over, hmm. which is like at around four four minutes in, and then like you get these, those big Shields guitars, and this is almost like this little slash time kind of move in the guitar solo. And the other one is mayonnaise, which is that kind of goes to the point that James is making. You know, it's a very honest and confrontational lyric. That I don't know what that title means. I don't think I've ever been able to figure that out. But the chorus, you know, he says again, I fall and I fail, but when I can, I'll try to understand that when i can i will you know mother weep the years i'm missing all of our time can't be given back you know he's he's clearly mining that vein that it isn't just a sort of the psychedelic like you know quasi hari krishna indian psych jam stuff on gish uh this is biographical and this is this is getting to be weirdly and deeply personal and i think that really helps i think that helped focus him apparently when this album was being recorded he went through like his biggest you know it's hard to imagine somebody who's prolific as as uh, billy corgan having writer's block but apparently this is when he had writer's block and so like you know, he spent all day trying to like get things done like weeks and then finally out came today and then disarm and then all of the rest of this came out and it clearly seems to be that that, that the, the the way to unlock that that door for him to to open up that new world of potential in his songwriting was to was to turn inward uh you know and i think once he said like yeah like you know i you know you go back and listen to Gish and it was me wanting to be all these other bands it was me wanting to be Sonic Youth or or Dinosaur Jr and I just realized like I gotta just be myself and I'm, I'm just kind of a, a gloomy guy <laughs> so I've gotta, <laughs> gotta like lean into the gloom and, and mind that for what it's worth and that's what comes out here sign on that and and yet you know it's it's not very gloomy music for a no. gloomy dude um and there's something about the the use of of music to alchemically convert like a bummer into something of great like majesty and power but it sure. doesn't wear itself too pompously, you know, and yes, I'm going to be the guy who says, like, oh, it's not really a pompous band, like, oh, come on. <laughs> um, you can imagine how another band 
trying to pull that off would just be unlistenably bad, terrible, terribly bad. Um, and yet, and yet, no, they they find a way to make it, you know, to make these songs move and sing, and they have some some light to them, uh, in spite of the fact that there are 800 layers of guitar and a drummer who seems to have 800 <laughs> sort of pieces in his kit. Yeah, and and also 800 different drugs throwing through his veins. I think the story goes yeah. that he apparently disappeared in the middle of the sessions. They had like gone out to like some other state, somewhere it's like South Carolina or something like that, to record it, uh, just to get Chamberlain away from all of his like his his drug connections in Chicago. And of course, it didn't help one bit. He like went on a bender and disappeared for a week. And they had to go on the radio and say, "Has anybody seen our drummer? Tell him he needs to come back because we have to finish the damn album." <laughs> So like it shouldn't have happened. This all could have fallen apart right here. But then they come out with this this diamond hard sort of almost sonically, perfectly glued together thing that makes them the biggest band on the planet. And then what of course is it that they do? They go and they release a B sides record. When I was a kid, when when Pisces Iscariot came out, um, you know my brother just went up and picked it up from the store and I was like, oh, Smashing Pumpkins third album. Oh, that's neat. And I was like, well, this is strange. Why is there a cover of a Fleetwood Mac song on this? <laughs> you know, like why are why are there all these weird jams? It felt like nothing. Like it, it didn't have anything like the focus. You know, the, sort of that diamond hard focus that Siamese Dream did. But the irony is that back then and maybe even now, I liked it more. It's actually one of my favorite B sides slash outtakes albums ever it's corgan freedom just to throw out a bunch of interesting songs and covers and you know half figured out riffs and tracks stuff that doesn't suffer from the pressure of you know having to be perfect you know there's that what's that song frail and bedazzled yeah. you know which is just a bunch of heavy metal riffs in search of a song and that's exactly what i want from it's the great punk that's a it's great, great song it's a great song That girl named Sandoz, which you know, uh, you know, James already talked about, and then of course there's landslide. Um, you know, the thing about landslide is that you know, I, I, you know, Scott and I were talking about this before the show. I was like, how did that go down in history as like the most famous Fleetwood Mac cover song ever? <laughs> And I have a theory about it. I think it kind of gets to sort of what James and I were already discussing, which is that he approaches it from a different perspective than Stevie Nicks did. Stevie Nicks was talking about sort of like, you know, the disappointment of, you know, uh, romance in her 20s and then I'm becoming a woman. You know, it's obviously about her relationship with uh, Lindsay Buckingham. Um, but, but Billy Corgan approaches it, you know, even though it was tossed off for a BBC session of all things, Corgan approaches it from the perspective of like, you know, adolescence about, you know, right. from childhood becoming an adult, he takes it in a very different direction. And, and I think, you know, that's why his vocal on that song is actually so good. A lot of people always complain about Billy Corgan's vocals and every now and then I will agree he can get too screechy. I have to admit it. It's true. Uh, but he sings that song with such pure emotion that he completely conquers what should be a really difficult song 
not only for you know a man but a man with Billy Corgan's voice to do. He actually does a fantastic job of reinterpreting it, and he kind of reinterprets it into what I guess is becoming the Smashing Pumpkins' overarching conceit, if that makes any sense. And I think it's also in part because he took those 70 rock artists seriously and wanted to be among, I mean, you know, Billy Corgan wanted to be a rock star, he wanted to be uh, among the biggest bands on the planet. And so where do you go back to? You look at, well, Fluid Max sold a billion copies of Rumors. He, he took them seriously um, in a way that I think maybe other grunge artists, or not other grunge, you know, but other grunge rock bands from that time would not. And so when he takes a look at Landslide, he can see it for what it is as a, as a piece of art, as a piece of music, and really got the most out of it. And, and, the, and the, you know, the simplicity, too, it's just, uh, it's just one guitar, one acoustic guitar, and I think one overdub on the solo, and that's it. Uh, that simplicity. Well, and, and let's let's talk about that solo too. Yeah. Uh, you know, on a, and this is on a record where you you can encounter sort of like you know <clears throat> twelve riffs milling around at a house party, and then <laughs> you know, the, the party ends. Right? You can find that, but you can also find, and it's not just a, like I want to be a great rock star. I am now going to do that. The discipline and focus that it took to create a a, just a tiny little solo in Landslide that, for my money, is far better than, than the original Fleetwood Mac sort of instrumental part of that song. Um, and to have it, you know, it sounds like it just dropped out of heaven, that little solo. And it's beautiful and note perfect, and it's not overdone, and it's not underdone. And right in that moment, you can see so much of what is going to become melancholy. Remember, he recorded it in 15 minutes at the end of a BBC session, too. That's the funny <laughs> thing about it. It wasn't like something he had you know, a lot of time to think about. That's just what came out automatically from him, which is even more impressive. But um, the, the only other thing I want to mention about Pisces is that the, you know, maybe even an even bigger gem than Landslide on this album is this completely insane 11-minute freakout called Starla, uh, which I think is actually pretty well-loved among like hardcore Smashing Pumpkins fans. It's, it's everything that was great about that early psychedelic shoegazy version of the band, the Gish era band. It's got this enormous riff, these oceanic guitars, and I mean, it's got, you know, not only does it have that, that psychedelic haze, but it, I mean, this is how tripped out this thing it is. It even has a break for bongos from Jimmy Chamberlain. There's a bongo break in this song. It has enough time for the bongos to just sort of like percolate there for a nice, you know, 35, 45 seconds. It's a great song. It's a song that's almost impossible to summarize, like in a clip. Maybe we'll try, but uh, it's like, you know, again, you want to 
be in the kind of frame of mind where you can sit down for 11 and 12 minutes and just listen to something that's going to take you to town slowly. <laughs> but I love it. mention one other quick song from Pisces, and that's Whir, which I think is a really tremendous song. It's it's lighter. I can understand why something like that would not appear on Siamese Dream. It's just not in that vein, but it's great. Chamberlain, I, th- I think he's using brushes. It's it's not the hard-hitting Chamberlain. It's the more subtle uh, drum playing from, from Chamberlain. And Whir is one of the songs... Uh, from this era that, look, that, that it could have been successful in, in any era, that, t- that type of songwriting. It's a sturdy song. It's a well-written song, very well per- pulled off. Where might be my favorite uh, moment on Pisces. <laughs> I guess that takes us to an album that I almost find hard to believe exists even to this day, and that is uh, 1995, uh, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. Whoa, that's a big lunker of an album. (laughs) It's not even a double album. Uh, It's a triple album. I mean, this is legitimately pretty rare in the history of popular music. Uh, you know, even like All Things Must Pass was two, two actual records of songs and then a bunch of like tossed off jams with Eric Clapton and Friends. It's not really a triple album. This is a real triple album. It's tough almost to swallow it all at once. It's over two hours long. It makes immense demands on your attention. But I think it may be their greatest achievement. It has flaws. There's very clearly flaws on this record. But I guess the way I'll open this and you know and then I'll throw it out to you guys to 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 have ask for your opinions. But to me I hear that this is this is theatrical music. 
I, in mm-hmm. my mind, I close my eyes and I, and I see like red velvet bunting adorning a stage in my mind as it plays, as they play on stage. You know, from everything from like that instrumental title track intro that leads into Tonight Tonight with those agitated sweeping strings. This is Billy Corgan working out every youthful demon that he ever wrestled with. And it, it could have been precious. It could have been bloated. I mean, at times it's both, to be fair. But as somebody who wasn't a fan of this band back in the day, it's impossible not to hear it now and not hear that professional and personal desperation and i guess how do i put this to to emphasize with that weird freak kid with dreams who made it big and is slowly trying song by song second by second guitar overdub by guitar overdub to remove that giant chip off of his shoulder Just like me 
is for Trent, and that's, you know, I'm not here to beat up on Trent Reznor. That's not the point of this podcast or, or my critical commentary on Smashing Pumpkins. Um, and then so many songs. And, and yes, there's, there are many detours to this record. Hmm. Um, there are many, you know, the, the Hall of Infinite Sadness has many chambers, right? Um, and yet, uh, you have Zero, you have Bullet with Butterfly Wings, you have uh, Muzzle, which is still probably my, my favorite Smashing Pumpkins song, if I'm forced to choose. which and i'll then, eat my damn shoe i by the way james i will eat my shoe if will and win butler of arcade fire weren't also listening to tonight tonight back in 1995 when they were kids because that song is plaqued practically the entire sonic blueprint for funeral for the first arcade fire album i mean if you can't hear wake up and like you know tunnels and Leica and all those really big you know sort of orchestral like you know deeply emotive songs about childhood and adolescence and like we're gonna make it all right we're gonna do it tonight like yeah that, that's, that's like, it's almost something that, that it only hit me when i went back to listen to it you know over the last several months i was like wait a second this is the entire arcade fire sound in one song which isn't to say anything about arcade fire one of my favorite bands but yeah yeah billy corgan beat them to it and he got there first
know, there is something to that. And um, one thing that really just landed a, a, a bit harder for me than I expected it to, revisiting some of these songs for this, for this podcast, is when I was in high school in the suburbs listening to Melancholy, um, there was this immense feeling of vitality. Um, that the suburbs were a place of, of you know, inexhaustible emotional resources. Um, and that, you know, n- no matter how suburban your suburbs were, there was a lot happening to you in your life, in your world. It was kind of this hotbed of energy and intensity and, and visceral feeling. Um, and then when you fast forward to... Arcade Fire's record about the suburbs, you get exhaustion, weariness, Mm -hmm. anxiety, emptiness, coldness, fragility, just the opposite of what, you know, and I think Billy very proudly claimed himself as the sort of hero of suburban America, of all those kids. And this brings us to 1979. The best song Smashing Pumpkins ever recorded in my mind. Just throwing it out there right now. But, I mean, I, the hardcores will doubt, doubtless fight me on this. But for me, it encapsulizes everything that Corgan ever wrote most eloquently about. About stuff like, you know, being a freak amongst the cool kids. And, you know, listening to his favorite records and dreaming that one day he's going to go do something as good at that. You know, and this, you know, talking about how, like, you know, you know, the cool kids never had the time. Um and of course, you know, when I was younger and I was like a smart ass, I used to always make fun of the fact that like, oh, well, d- you know, Doug, you think you're really cool. You like that song. Did you not know that he stole that song idea from Husker Du? Which is true. And maybe we should even drop the riff in here because it's very clearly nicked from the opening of Husker Du's What Going On off of Zen Arcade. the fact um billy corgan actually wrote a better song than what's going on <laughs> what's going on is pretty great thrash hardcore but 1979 is a genuinely inspired melodic series of chord changes and it's set to one of the most truly resonant lyrics of his career and i and, and ironically enough despite that like icy kraut rock sound that it gets it, it personifies their fu kind of midwestern suburban attitude and you know, corgan's own personal beefs and loves better than anything else in their catalog and i guess it, i consider it their quintessential track maybe just mo no more so reason than for the fact that it sounds so different from their classic sound
It does. And one reason for that is there's no solo. Nope. Here is a guy who can and did solo all over <laughs> every whichever of his songs he wanted to as much as he wanted to. And if anyone would even look at him sideways, they were probably exiled from his life forever. And he gives himself no, not a note of solo on that song. It's remarkable. 1979 is a song that guarantees the pumpkins will live forever. That, 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 that's a, a timeless song, um, you know, that, that evokes nostalgia and, and, and melancholy, no, no, no pun intended, um, and, and it will be played forever. And it, it's, a, it's a perfect song. That is, you know, I, I mentioned how Siamese Dream had sort of driven me away from the band and uh, contemporary, uh, contemporaneous listening to Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, I, I don't have. I, I did not come to appreciate a lot of it until much farther down the line. And so I forget how massive it was. This was a certified diamond record. Now, that means when they, count, when they sell a double album, it gets counted twice. So they sold, but still sold 5 million copies of a, as Jeff pointed out, essentially a triple album in, in the middle of the 1990s. That's incredible. These songs were all over the place. And as, as, uh, um, as James mentioned, you know, people couldn't get enough of the Smashing Pumpkins at this time. And looking back with good reason, I do remember Bullet with Butterfly Wings at least got me intrigued once again by Smashing Pumpkins from that very first... The world is a vampire. The pulsing of, uh, of Chamberlain's drums uh, and the crunching guitars. And that last 30 seconds of Bullet with Butterfly Wings is just fantastic. And again, looking back at Tonight Tonight, um, a song I, I there's no reason I should not have liked more at the time. And I listen back to it now and I hear what I hear is a lot of cheap trick. Um, you know, Circa Dream Police, the, the strings, the 30 piece yeah. string uh, section that's on tonight, tonight, that deep rumble, the, those bunny fills that Chamberlain's throwing all over the place on tonight, tonight. What a fantastic, fantastic song. And this is where I think Corgan begins to use his voice um, better. Uh, I, I, I agree with Jeff 
you know, those criticisms about his voice being a little whiny and screechy, I agree with that in, in some places. But I think he uses it to much better effect throughout this album, and especially on, on Tonight Tonight. It's just a just a gorgeous, gorgeous song. And coming after you know, the title track, which I I hear a lot of Elton John in. You know, this was such a, a, a 70s album, right? The double album, The Wall, The White Album, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. No, I mean, Captain Fantastic Captain and the Fan- Brown Dirt right. Cowboy, right. Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. And so that first, that first track is very, you know, just piano, and it's, 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 it's a way that Elton, would, Elton John might have started an album. But, you know, you go and, and you dig deeper because it is a deep album. There are so many cuts. Uh, and I think toward, you know, after 1979, actually, on that second uh, second disc, I, I think it does slow. And I think it, it sort of doesn't collapse, but it sort of is weighed down by all that they try to do here. But there's a lot in between. Here is No Why. That's a great song. That start-stop guitar rhythm and a great uh, epic uh, solo on Here so Is No Why. That to me is, that, that is straight-up T-Rex. That's yeah. not the oh, hoople. Yeah. That's glam. Yeah, yeah, it has that feel to me. Um, and and the, there's a, that, that section from like Love all the way through Muzzle, probably, where, where Love, they're kind of taking that, that, that droney intro to You're All I've Got Tonight from the Cars, which they'd, they'd cover in a bit. Uh, and sort of steal that for the beginning of love. You have two kind of scene setters, mood setters with Cupid and Galapagos, which are both really good, and into Muzzle, which I know James really loves. That's a great stretch uh, on on this record. And um, and again, toward the very, very end, uh, Beautiful is forward-looking to something that we might hear on, on the very next album, Adore, that, that really precious tinkling piano uh, and, and just a subdued track uh, toward the end of Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. Those singles were singles for a reason. They were giant for a reason. Um, and, and Melancholy, 10 million, you know, 5 million times 2 uh, units moved is just an amazing accomplishment for something uh, that had the ambition that Corgan and the band did for it, that they went for it, pulled it off, and were met with just overwhelming success. I mean, I think there's some generic motion on that album, right? Ode to No One really does nothing to me. I think XYU is like on the second half, the classic example of like one of those really long rocker songs that they played live a lot, but it just never did a thing for me. Tales of a Scorched Earth, similar. But yeah, this is an album that always kind of threatens to fall apart, but somehow it never does. And that's a miracle, as I said, given how much of a demand it makes on your attention for so long. There's always something interesting you know, just looming right over the horizon. Yeah, like just when yeah. you think about the ending is, you know, like, ah, oh, well, the last part of this album is so good. Yeah, boom, there's beautiful. You know, and, and, and for me, there are also just some gen- genuinely magical moves into completely new territory. Cupid de Lock, I love. I don't know if those are harps or those are synthesizers. I have no idea what's actually being done there. It could be just playing up guitar. Um, Galapagos is, 
the second best song on the album, in my opinion. Uh, it, it was such delicate moments that contrast with that big finale. You know, it's a song about a failing relationship, uh, and, and it does such a good job of depicting it. Uh, and it'll never make it onto any greatest hits album that the Smashing Pumpkins put out, but it should be on all of them. But another one that really deserves also to be recognized is one of those big epics that really comes off, and that's Porcelina of the Vast Oceans. Things nine and a half minutes long. That should mean bad things. It should sag. But this is not like one of those drone grooves. This is Corgan and company stringing together like five or six different little song ideas into one really compelling overall whole. And, uh, you know, I guess in a way it's like, you know, an embodiment of everything that was going on on this album. I just, to this day, don't know how he could put together, within the span of when he had about a year to work on this, between this and Siamese Dream, put together a year's worth of music. And it was not only everything on this record, but it's everything on the, the, the flipping ridiculous B-side set that we should maybe <laughs> at least discuss briefly called The Airplane Flies High. Now, this was back when it was released as like a limited edition. Like, you know, it's it's the single A-size and the, some B-sides. I think it was like a six-CD set or something like that, like CD singles. So like seven tracks on, on a disc. Um, in the expanded version, it's now 90 songs long. Uh, it's literally seven hours worth of music, which is almost just like Billy Corgan's way of sort of making a joke, right? Saying like, yeah, look, at, you, know, you think that was overkill? Well, let me show you what overkill really looks like. But there's a lot of fun B-sides stuff on this. Lots of stuff that could have been on the album. Set the Rate of Jerry is just goofy, spacey fun. And I know I recommended this one to you, Scott. I hope you like it as much as I do. But they do this cover of an old Alice Cooper song during his very brief new wave phase called We're All Clones. And it's a great song. It's his hysterically funny i just think that like you know this is the one that's for the hardcores only but you know if you find the time and you've decided you've become a hardcore about this band check out the airplane flies high maybe you don't have to get the 90 cd the 90 song <laughs> version maybe you can just go for something a little more modest but there's a lot of good stuff hiding away on the flip sides of those singles yeah and it look pumpkins had like 350 songs in their career so you know i i told jeff look 
Aeroplane Flies High. I know you've, you've devoured it. Tell me what I have to hear. What, 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 should, what should I pick out? So Said Sadly, you recommended, which is really good. Uh, James Eha, this country-leaning duet. Very, very good. And I'm so glad. I did not even know that this cover existed. The uh, This is, you know, from Flush the Fashion in 1980. Alice Cooper, when he weighed like 82 pounds because he was smoking so much crack. Um, <laughs> and it, it, it's it's just this weird kind of mechanical song in Alice Cooper's version of it. And the, the, the cover that the Pumpkins do here on Aeroplane Flies High is really good uh, of, of clones. So, yes. Thank you so much for pointing that out to me. Destroy the government, we're destroying time. No more problems on the way. I'm through doctor, we don't need your kind. We are the ones, ugly ones, stupid boys, wrong ones. I'm all alone, so are we all? We're all clowns, all the one in world, all the one in world. Yeah, I mean, there's a song, there's a song in this collection called "The Last Song," which you know turned out not to be the case. Needless to say, um, I've always been partial to their cover of um, "Destination Unknown" that's collected here. Um, you know, they're really just in that in the groove where a band recognizes that you know within certain limits it can do anything and pull it off. Um, and then you have a song, you know, I mean, this is the era of songs like Ugly, songs like I, you know, very dark, grindy, you know, industrial, just like out Resnoring Resnor. like a perfect drug which is you know kind of cool but also like kind of kind of a bit much a bit on the nose even for trent um and (laughs) so you know so billy is out out trenting trent and uh out out charting the competition um really the only other true rock star um at that time at that level i think is like 1998 mechanical animals era uh marilyn manson um, and then, and then, uh, you know, Courtney Love, who maybe all of his songs are about, maybe, <laughs> um, and who, you know, and who, who chose to to go from from Kurt to Billy, and I think, you know, I mean, I've always enjoyed Billy more than Kurt too, uh, and that brings us to, you know, no sooner does does this box set come out and melancholy delivers probably eight singles or or album tracks to radio um uh then um 
then Billy writes, you know, half of Hole's biggest record and um, has his hands all over uh, Manson's biggest, poppiest record. Um, and it seems like the the sky is the, the stratosphere is the limit for Smash. And and then until <laughs> until one day, until one day, uh, until one day, Jimmy uh, does one too many drugs. So you want to tell the story of this one? I can take it if you want. I mean, the story is is really ugly. Um, uh, so uh, they're touring Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. Uh, they're this obviously is the biggest record on the planet. Um, and they are going out on a world tour, killing it um, on a daily basis. Uh, so they're in 96 now, I think. And then, of course, what happens is that they're in there playing a gig in New York City. And uh, Jimmy Chamberlain, being the uh, smack addict that he is, frankly, has been for a very long time up until this point with you know various attempts at getting clean but endless relapses. Uh, goes into a hotel room with the band's touring keyboardist, a guy by the name of Jonathan Melvoin, and they do a few too many drugs, and they both overdose, and um, Melvoin dies right there on the spot in that room. And uh, Chamberlain, of course, is alive. He's OD'd, but he survives it, and he gets arrested for drug possession. And what the heck are they supposed to do now? The Pumpkins obviously have to like cancel their show, um, but more importantly, they have to cancel their drummer. I mean, you can't keep a guy in a band after that's happened. So they have to fire him. He's obviously the most dynamic part of their 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 instrumental approach, uh, not just live, but in the studio. I mean, we always talk about how you know Billy does all the guitars and records everything, but like the key dynamic in that recording relationship was always Billy playing off against Jimmy. Mm-hmm. And so losing Jimmy is such a huge blow. But of course, it's something that has to happen. I mean, he's a, he's a, not only is he a drug addict, but he's played a contributory role in getting another member of the group killed. What do you do at that point? This everything falls apart. And of course, the band has never been on the best terms in the first place. You know, James Ehan, Darcy Rescue, they used to be an item. And then they broke up somewhere around the time of like Siamese Dream. Uh, and then James, of course, resented the fact, so did Darcy, that of course, that Billy would insist on like recording all the instruments himself. That's he kind of stepped back a little bit on that and during the melancholy years but there's just so much bad blood through this group and then jimmy chamberlain goes and does that and you could easily have thought to yourself that eh, that's it how could that not be the end of the group um i guess in some ways it was the end of one form of the group but it wasn't the end of the group at all in a lot of ways because what ends up next coming is um an album that Sort of, sort of heralded the end of Smashing Pumpkins' big commercial, giant commercial success, their peak era, uh, because it's so wildly uncharacteristic of the band. I mean, where had they had been at that point? All this darkness, this heavy, the layers and layers of thrashing guitars, the heavy metal riffs, um, you know. And of course, there was always a big dreamy streak within the band as well. But the emphasis, certainly on the big singles, had always been on the bombast. Uh, and instead, you get an album called Adore, which uh, I'm going to come out right now and say uh, I debated whether saying I thought this was the best album Smashing Pumpkins ever released. And I'm going to choose it as one of my two favorite ones at the end of this show, despite the fact that it is so, so different than everything that they had done before. I'm really impressed by this. And I, I think I know Scott is, too. So maybe, Scott, you go first on this. 
Yeah, look, uh, Adore is my favorite Smashing Pumpkins record, and it's the one I return to most often. So I don't know where, uh, I don't, I'm, I'm not quite enough of a, uh, a Pumpkins fan to know if that's a popular or unpopular opinion, but it is mine. It also includes what is likely my favorite Smashing Pumpkins song. I, I think Ava Adore is my favorite Smashing Pumpkins song. That is a tremendous piece of songwriting from start to finish. And, and, you know, it starts with this, the album starts with this very sparse track called To Sheila. And you, you begin with this this a- ambiance of, like, crickets. It's, you know, it's a synth drone, but it sounds like, like crickets. And, you know, a little banjo picking, although I checked the Yeah, those are, I, was, I, I was thinking the same thing. I, re- I wrote it down in my notes, Scott. I was sort of like, are those yeah. banjos that I'm hearing? But it's not banjos? on the liner notes, so I don't know. I mean, I think it has to be, but it's not on the liner notes, so who knows? You make me you make me real strong as I feel. You make me real. It's just a great little intro, and it slams right into Ava Adore, the second song on the album. This just throbbing pulse of a rhythm, um, and you know, the, the Chamberlain's gone, but it's not like this album has no drums. I mean, they they recruited some people. I think Matt Cameron plays a bit on on Adore, so that it's not just an electronic you know shift. It's more uh, I don't want to make the direct comparison, but it's it's almost more like like what garbage was sounding like around that time right so you still have drums and you still have rhythm it's not just this this electronic uh album ava adore though just a tremendous groove um and you know he has that snarl sort of automatically in his delivery but it fits the lyrics here and those those big guitar flourishes those power chords uh right around you know we must never be apart love when those hits the bridge is fantastic the way that the lyrics flip from the beginning to the end you know the end is you'll always be my whore because you're the one that i adore flip from the very start of the song um and and again as james mentioned earlier uh billy corgan the the compact brilliant guitar solo and he gives us one in ava adore as well uh, it's my favorite pumpkin song and it's right at the start of what is my favorite pumpkins album <laughs>
One through four is tough to beat. Two Sheila, perfect. Ava adores the second track. And then Daphne Descends is a great fourth track. It feels cinematic in scope. It feels big. Uh, you know, I have a you know, grandeur uh, written down here next to my notes. This, this very flattened, hollow drum sound. A very dark mood. Daphne Descends is very good. I like Once Upon a Time, this very gentle ballad, which kind of feels like th- th- there's this sense of finality on Once Upon a Time. It starts, Mother, I'm tired. Come surrender, my son. Time has ravaged my soul. Um, and we get dark here uh, through the album as well. Uh, later, um, t- the tale of Dusty and Pistol Pete, <laughs> which again sounds like it should be on Tumbleweed no Connection. Song, no, no song... Uh, no song named The Tale of Dusty and Pistol Pete has any right to be as good as this song. It's is. really I mean, I, good. I, I literally saw that. I- I saw that title on the liner notes, and I thought to myself, this is just Billy Corgan going ass over tea kettle into pretentiousness, isn't it? And no, it's a beautiful song. Yep. There's that little beautiful sustained guitar note that's somewhere around the three-minute mark. It's, it's, oh, my gosh. I am just, you know, uh, he keeps surprising me by coming up with these ridiculous song titles that actually <laughs> lead to really wonderful songs. <laughs> The, the very middle is weighed down a bit, I think, by kind of it's that same kind of muted production, which works so well for the album as a whole. But I think there's a there's a brief period toward the uh, middle six six seven eight tracks, uh, track six seven eight, where where things sort of blend together a little bit. But uh, but again, it perks up at the end. I, I like Annie. Uh, Any dog toward toward the end, where I think his voice is used in a way it had not been used before. He's sort of croaking out some of the lyrics over the sparse drum and piano. Um, man, I, again, this is uh, again filled to the gills. Sixteen tracks, seventy four minutes. You can't fit much more on a compact disc. If you could, uh, Corgan would have tried to. But Adore is my, my is, it's my favorite Smashing Pumpkins album. James, high praise, high praise, gentlemen. Uh, you know, I, I gotta say that um, much of this record for me is is overshadowed by you know the 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 first three or four cuts off of Mechanical Animals and Celebrity Skin, which you know I, I count as you know the 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 full band music that that Billy was responsible for because his band had had been temporarily incapacitated. Uh, that that said, though, you know. Um, this is his white album for me. You know, it's nominally one LP, uh, but it's got, you know, his answer to Bungalow Bill on it, and it's got <laughs> his, like, 
sort of weird meandering songs. And this is a record about his mother. It's just full of mom stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't think it's, there's a coincidence that it's called a door, you know, a, a way out, um, and a way home. Uh, perfect for me is, is the sequel to 1979. Um, you know, Ava is amazing and has the, the sort of ultimate goth pumpkins video. <laughs> it just doesn't get more Nosferatu than the video for Ava Adore. Um, and that, you know, if, if that goes into the time capsule that future generations discover to try to understand what was going on in 1998, like that, that belongs in there. Um, but you know, the, I've got a lot of respect for songs like blank page. Um, I know, uh, I know that, uh, for Martha has, has some gets really good traction for some people. Uh, and even something like behold the nightmare, which is just so, so far out of left field. Um, and yet, you know, when it starts playing, you don't turn it off. Um, in the, you know, totality of the circumstances, the door is, a huge achievement and um and marks you know this it's it's like the band completed its journey by diving into the inky depths never to be seen again until two years later when it was (laughs) (laughs) and it was a little surprising everyone surprising everyone sort of but uh, but just in those two years, the world had totally changed. Yeah, by the time uh, they came back, it was a different world. I mean, that, well, in so many totally. different ways. I just want to say one so, thing before you know, we... Yeah? Yeah, go ahead. No, no, I mean, I was just going to say that, like, every single Smashing Pumpkins album is too long. And every single Smashing Pumpkins album has, like, a song or two that should be removed from it that would improve the flow of the album. This is the one I would take the least off of. Like, the only thing on this record that doesn't work is that New Order pastiche apples and oranges. Uh, there, there are oh, a couple other. That's new- a great song, though. I know. Well, you know what? I know a lot of people like it. I just think it doesn't have enough of a melody to justify that straight-up electronica approach. I think Daphne Descends and Perfect are much better sort of quasi-New Order, Brotherhood era, New Order takes. For me, uh, the one that I just want to focus on before we move on uh, is For Martha. It's right near the end. I mean, it's one of the things I like about the album is that it really rewards your patience by putting what I consider one of the best songs that Billy Corgan ever wrote near the end of that. Um, It's unlike anything that the Pumpkins had ever done before. It's basically, it's a confessional piano ballad for his mom and then that build up at it that build up at around four four and a half minutes is so simple and yet so powerful it's just that little three note little figure that keeps you know repeating and repeating and then varying and then varying as guitar bass drums i think this is the one that matt cameron is playing on too so it's not like a drum machine here they got a live drummer and a good one matt cameron of course is Soundgarden, pearl jam good drummer um 
And then it goes into that screaming guitar solo that's unlike anything else on this record. It's like the only time in the entire record where you, other than maybe Ava Adore, where you get like, you, you, this is like a rock, a stadium rock or arena rock guitar solo, but it's more subdued than that. And it's more melodic than anything that he would have played on a lot of earlier Smashing Pumpkins albums. This isn't like metal. It's sweetness. This is a song about his mom. Um, I love the emotional catharsis of that song, and I love its placements. It's the penultimate track, so it just leaves you with blank page right after it, which is a very quiet way to go away. Um, I feel strange recommending we, we should, this. We should say we should say one other thing about this yeah. record, uh, which is there is a super deluxe version. If you want uh, 80, 80 tracks yep. of Adore and its its varieties. But one of those tracks, of course, characteristically just buried in the track listing, is a little song called Let Me Give the World to You. Yes, that was supposed to be on the record. That was not only supposed to be on the record, it was supposed to be the lead single on the record. And the record company said, oh, thank God, like, there's a there's a hit and this is it, man. Like, we're ready. Let's go. And Billy said, um, I'm leaving it off the record. He deliberately... (laughs) took the hit away from the record company just to piss them off and left it completely <laughs> off the record. And now you can get it on that disc five of the 2014 right. Ultra That's Super right. Deluxe bonus reissue. <laughs> he saved it for the reissue. Lovers with dead excuse Blood lines with soul abuse My lonesome lines just have no use around here New skin will hold you in, but the old skin turns a sound. Flicker fades the nitrate down to Let me give the world to you, my love. Let me give the world to you. Times are hard and we're the last in line In my grief I'd forgotten what was mine And I wouldn't change a thing No way, no I, mean, I, I love the perversity of it. I do. I do love the perversity of it. And by the way, I have that five CD set. Um, you know, I didn't get. The, there was a six CD version that has like an extra bonus or something, or like a live show or something like that. But I figured five discs was enough. You actually can't lose and, yourself and yet, in these and yet things. The, the perversity had only just begun, as uh, as volume one and two of Machine I would. <laughs> okay, so what happens? So okay. Uh, Jimmy apparently dries out enough that the band feels like they can take him back into the fold. And, of course, Billy Corgan is thrilled to be able to do this. You know, at this point, James E. has already gone off and done his own solo record, which is kind of, like, lightweight. I'm not a huge fan of it. Darcy is, like, pretty estranged from the group, but she's still technically a member. Here comes Jimmy Chamberlain. And the year is 2000. This is the year where what were the biggest things going on in the year 2000? It was, it was teeny bopper bands. It was American Idol. It was Britney Spears. And it was rap rock. <laughs> so what room 
was there left in this world for uh, a band like the Smashing Pumpkins with these sort of proggy alternative rock pretensions and this sort of the noisy guitars, but you know, well, heavily layered and highly curated with you know these weird literary aspirations. And if you look at the the names of the songs on this album, your head will swim. Ooh, glasses, <laughs> glass in the ghost of children. You know, uh, the crying tree of Mercury, or what was the one like? I am of the morning, and it's not the morning as in the dawn. It's of like morning as in yeah. sadness and bereavement. I oh, mean, you. so profound. And I, of course, did not listen to this album at all at the day uh, back when it came out. I was like, I got better things to do than to bother myself with this pretentious snot. Um, I was listening to Genesis ironically back then, so I was in this a different kind of pretentious snot. Um, uh, but I went back to it in preparation for this show, and I was stunned. I was stunned. I could not believe. I was given to believe. You know, I read the reviews, and you know, you you just look at the mediocre reviews it got at the time. You look at the bad sales. Heck, you even look at the title. How could you ever really get non-pretentiously and non-ironically behind an album called Machina: The Machines of God? <laughs> it's so dorky. It's Billy obviously getting into his like I am a poet mode, which would of course become more and more the case as time went on. But the music on this record is really great, particularly the first half of this album. I don't have any complaints I can level against this. I think that the first six songs on this record, everything up to Heavy Metal Machine, are just superb. They're not the, they're not the same. It's like a fusion of the style of Adora, which is much more melodic and much more sort of open to the, you know, the, the slightly dreamier, less emphasis on the heaviness, but then you all of a sudden lash it to like Jimmy Chamberlain doing classic jimmy chamberlain drum stuff and it's a pretty interesting mix i've got to say this is clearly their most underrated record in my opinion um definitely agree and even side b you know there's some nonsense on side b of this record <laughs> but this was this was supposed to be a whole project called glass and there was going to be a movie and there were going to be multiple uh lps and it was going to be this gigantic concept production about this sort of semi-mythical, like, rock star figure who is gradually destroyed. So, you know, where'd that idea come from? I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, and so this record is just kind of, like, culled from that project that never was able to be fulfilled. So that partly explains why Glass and the Ghost Children, who's Glass? Well, he was supposed to be the main character of, like, a 30-song suite with, like, <laughs> multimedia components. You don't know that by listening to the record, so it's a little bit out of context. But even on side B, where you encounter things like that, you encounter like hidden gems like This Time, and like Wound is just one of their best songs, and one of their most open and beautifully crafted lyrically. Closes with Age of Innocence, which is just like this 
strange little jewel and understated but propulsive. record um i think you find on this record some of the most mature fully realized and and brilliantly constructed pumpkin songs i think stand inside your love is possibly the best of them all i think it's you know it it might be just the most for me the most quintessential and perfect and grand summation of everything that the pumpkins was stand inside your love is a fantastic song and uh, it's the highlight of the of the of the record for me. You know, the, the verses are kind of a bullet with butterfly wings, kind of turned out its head. But that same chord, sort of sort of chambered and beat, leading up to the uh, the release of the chorus, kind of dream pop, and but also has that that kind of longing that you had in 1979 um, as well. Uh, I think "Stand Inside Your Love" is very good. forth on the album as a whole. I, I, I think the first half is better than the second, as Jeff mentioned, although I agree with James' Age of Innocence is is, is very good at, right at the very end. A try, Try, Try is a pretty good pop song. Um, I like that one a lot, actually, um, yeah. Everlasting Gaze is good. I, my criticism would be that, you know, I think what Flood's involved in the production here, and I, I'm not so sure about the really processed sound on a lot of this. Now, it is kind of of the time, right? But, you know, there's some real heavy synth, there's guitar hiss all over the place, some, like the imploding voice or uh, sacred and profane songs like that. I'm not sure how well the production serves the songs in those areas. But again, this is an album 
which I mean, that scene from my cousin Vinny, where where uh, uh, Marissa Tomei is kind of getting on Joe Pesci, is like, "How much do you want to put on this case? How how much more can we put on this case?" Uh, and Machine is like, "All right, Chamberlain's back, and we announced it's her last album, and you know, Adore didn't sell all that well, and they've got this big concept, and I want it to be two LPs, but the record company only wants to do one. Like, there's so much." thrown into Machina to try to make it a success. There was so much uh, thrown into it that uh, I'm not sure how it ended up even as good as it did uh, with some of the, some of the highlights. Um, I, I do like Everlasting Gaze, too, just as a as a real uh, great, you know, Jimmy Chamberlain going crazy on Phil's sort of song. Everlasting Gaze works well, too. I'm still, I'm still, I'm not quite as high as you two, but I, I, I go back and forth on this one. I just I still can't get past the fact that like I looked at this I held this album in my hands and I and I literally like said a small prayer to myself. I said like Jesus God, just don't let it hurt too much. You know, 75 minutes of this crap, please just don't let the pain become too great. And then I, it turned out that I got like a, an album I enjoyed quite a bit. Um in a way I I it's this is going to sound very very uh blasphemous. But there's a certain approach, a songwriting, a melodic approach that sort of he picked up around the end of Melancholy and carried through to a door that you hear on this record that I prefer to stuff from like Gish or uh, from Siamese Dream Era, uh, which is not to say that those records don't have their chimes. But I, I had like a song like I love Sacred and Profane. You know, it's got a bit of a robo dance beat, but when you put the drum machine plus Jimmy Chamberlain, you get a much different feel when you add him back into the mix i am of the morning pretentious title though it is it's just a massive pop success i love the whole radio 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 what is it that you want to change line and that and of course that seems almost a little bit prophetic because clearly that's the the demon that the the pumpkins and that billy was dealing with at this point you know the reason this album went nowhere isn't because it's subpar it's not it's because i think there are two things going hand in hand here people were just tiring of billy corgan in general his increasingly artsy pretensions you know and the, and, and, and you know the, the po tasting but also because modern music has as i said just moved on from this sound you know i mean in a world where limp biscuit is is the hottest rock <laughs> band in the world um and you know that the best that you can do otherwise would be something like blink 182 or like pop pop punk and stuff like that then you, you're really kind of left without very many options for this sort of dense and demanding artsy kind of music and that was kind of why the end of the pumpkins had to happen um but they actually left us with a pretty great album of course i don't know if you consider that their last album there is always machina 2 the friends and enemies of modern music which i'll admit i have listened to only once it's like it's it's 95 minutes long folks i have a child and a wife and a life some of this <laughs> he, you know he just gets you he gets you so much music all at once and, and apparently it was sort of like sold as like a, it's a bunch of b-sides there isn't even any real agreed upon track listing for this thing it's just a bunch of songs that that were not chosen for the um the mon you know the, the concept of the actual album that was released i don't know if you guys have any thoughts about that i do i want to point out that um, when Machina was released, it, it wasn't released officially. It was like given away for free, but that's where Billy Corgan first chose to finally give away Let Me Give the World to You because it was a total F you. He's like, well, nobody will profit from this. <laughs> I'm giving it away for free. Uh, it's a very Billy move. Uh, but beyond that, you know, if you guys don't have any particular thoughts on that one, I guess we have to go to the weird reunion era of the Pumpkins, unless uh, maybe James wants to say something about Zwan. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, Machina 2 is a fascinating document, and there there indeed are sounds on that record that do not appear on other Smashing Pumpkins records. Hmm. So just the the ability of this man to, to even have more ideas at this point is uh, just baffling. I mean, it, it crosses over into sort of just like bemused amazement that <laughs> these sounds are coming out of your and you And why not? You know, like, Billy, let him have that. I, I I applaud it, even if I'm not going to listen to it for maybe another five or ten or twenty-five years. Um, but yes, we should say a word about Zwan, Billy's uh, Jesus record, really Jesus and Mary. It's uh, it is his Jesus and Mary chain. Um, strange, uh, strange composition of the of Zwan the band. Um, but you know, hit after hit. I mean, songs that are every bit as good as the good pumpkin songs. Uh, it's just a different band. He's it's you know it's sort of like Earth to Billy Corgan. Um, and if you you know if you're down to clown with Christian rock and roll, like this is about as good as it gets. Yeah, this is the thing that people need to understand about Billy Corgan because you know everybody thinks about one of his most famous lyrics being like, you know, "Emptiness is loneliness, and loneliness is cleanliness, and cleanliness is godliness, and God is empty, just like me." Billy Christian, Billy Corgan is a, a very serious Christian. <laughs> like you know, like, the Mary Star of the Sea is dedicated to like the Virgin Mary. No joke. The whole thing is very sincere, um, and I think it's a. You know, I don't know if it's a Smashing Pumpkins album, but it's a—it's uh, not a bad album at all. It's not as good, I think, as any of the uh, uh, the earlier Pumpkins records, but it's—it's it's got like way more going for it than you might expect from a well, what do you call it—a weird vanity project. Which again, you know, how much of a vanity project is it? It is—it is Billy Corgan with Jimmy Chamberlain, and a lot of people would argue, well, that's the Pumpkins, at least in the studio. Um, but it doesn't sound like them. It has a it has a very much different sound. It's a much softer sound frankly i mean they have like you know like you know uh you know cello on that one song i can't remember what it is i think it's broken heart um and uh you know it's just a different different groove but uh i i'd like it i'll say this i like it a lot more than the, the official uh, smashing pumpkins reunion album <laughs> I, I i don't know what you guys yeah. think of of that one i i'm i'm not high on it i think uh, scott you want to repeat what it was that yeah. you said to us well, in, in the uh, emails i'm listening to zeitgeist and i may have heard it once or twice at the time but uh, didn't give it a whole lot of uh, repeat spins and here i listen and at some points i'm like well that's not terrible I, tarantula is not not bad uh that's the way my love is it's not bad but then there are other parts when I'm convinced it sounds utterly like uh, Chinese democracy from Guns N' Roses. And that that's not a good thing. That's, <laughs> that is not a good thing.
And what do you mean by that? You mean like 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 the the, the overbaked it's, and overthought? Yes, the overbaked, overthought, sort of uh, trying to find new tones that sort of match with you know the, the new metal. Uh, uh, sounds of, of of that day, or at least of the few years prior. There's a lot of kind of snarling and thrashing on here. It doesn't really fit the the songs right. And and again, from a production sound point, point, it sounds a little too much like trying to find the right sound, which is you know, in Chinese democracy, with so many years in the making, you had all these different sort of uh, um, sort of trends had come and gone but were still on the album and that's a little bit of what it sounds like here you know Zeitgeist all these things had kind of come and gone the past 10 years in rock music and they all appear here in some form but not a lot in a very good way all I needed to know is that I saw Roy Thomas Baker got a production yeah it's not a few songs songs, and I was like "Ah, I'm out <laughs> yeah, he was uh, Roy Thomas Baker is best left to produce Darkness Records, and I do not mean that as an insult to the Darkness. <laughs> my maybe maybe you'll do if you do a Darkness podcast episode. Like I'm your guy, I'll hook you up. But Zeitgeist, I found inscrutable, totally inessential for me. It's one of those like like anger at George W. Bush records mm. that I just I don't know. None, none of them seem to be. They age. They don't age well, good. right? Yeah. No, they, none of them age particularly well. Um, and you know, there's also like a Billy Corgan solo record put out sometime in there too that that disappeared without a trace. I don't even know if I listened to it. Um, so you know, the man remained productive and continues to this day. You know, uh, the, the 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 past couple of records um, were originally conceived as yet another gigantic multi-record <laughs> project. It was like a 44-song project, right? 44 yeah. flipping songs. Tea Garden, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, then a Tea Game was like Oceania, you know, which is yeah. like, I think which it's like right. maybe somewhat better, but I don't know if I, uh, you know, I don't know if it, you know, I don't know if there's anything here to return. He's prolific as ever, but I feel like you know he he isn't he isn't finding the inspiration that he used to. Oce- in my opinion, Oceania is not bad. I mean, really. No, it was like the the big question for me is why doesn't he just sit down with a an acoustic guitar and just record songs? Who wouldn't want? I mean, those unadorned, not overproduced. Don't have to worry about personnel changes. Just sit down with the guitar and record the songs, man. Like, you're good enough to just record the songs <laughs> acoustic and have them stand and fall on their merits. It's that true. If you, if, you go, if you go listen to the demos that are found on these bonus tracks for all the albums, yeah. like, I mean, you listen to him just play Tonight Tonight and sing that as an acoustic song or 1979, you'd be shocked to realize, like, wow, that actually... What works perfectly well is just one man playing an acoustic guitar because he's a good player who writes really, really solid, well put together things. Um, he could do it, and he's always actually been good at it. I mean, go back as far as landslide or something like that. He can play wonderfully just doing that. But you know, he's too restless. I mean, that's really what is. I mean, what is this? What is the story of Smashing Pumpkins and Billy Corgan, if not the story of a restless soul? <laughs> you know, he's always on the move, always writing songs. <laughs> uh, anything from the last couple? I mean, Monuments to Analogy. There's a new one last year, Shining and Oh So Bright. I would say that's that's the one I haven't listened to yet. I have to admit it. I would say only two things very quickly. One is that he's editing himself, which is crazy. Both these albums are right at thirty minutes each, uh, which is quite an accomplishment. And there's a song on Monuments to Analogy called Tiberius, which is the best Weezer song of the past decade by a <laughs> long shot. <laughs> 
it's actually pretty darn good. Yeah, but um, Weezer hasn't been any good since Maladroit, so that's not saying too much. Yes, yes, but it still it still clears that bar. that out. <laughs> I have to check that one out. Uh, and there we are. The uh, Political Beats look at the career of Smashing Pumpkins with our guest, James Polis. Uh, this is the part of the episode where we come to you and tell you the two albums from our featured band that you should own and the five songs from the band that you just have to hear. We turn it over to our guest first, the executive editor of The American Mind, James Polis. You can give us both your two albums and your five songs, please. Uh, you know, I sort of agonized over this, and I may still be agonizing over it. Um, I think, I think, I, I know I'm going to just piss you guys off, but I think that just for the sake of the audience getting the best slice of, of all the Pumpkins records, I'm going to go with Melancholy and Machina, as strange as that may seem. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's probably on account of, of my all-time favorite pumpkin songs. Uh, Ava Adore is definitely on that list, but in addition to that... Um, Stand Inside Your Love, which I already mentioned. Uh, Muzzle, which I already mentioned. Um, you know, uh, it's just, it's always such a toss-up for me. You know, I would i would even put, <laughs> I would put Celebrity Skin, the song on my list of my favorite <laughs> Smashing Pumpkins record uh, songs, at least. Um, and that, that, what, leaves two, two more. Um, Mayonnaise, I think, is on there. And, uh, oh, it's really torture. Um, probably zero, I think, <laughs> which you know just tells you where I was at in in 1997 as a young man in suburban California. Uh, all right, my my two albums. Uh, told you, Adore is my favorite, so it's on the list, and uh, and also Melancholy. So Adore and Melancholy, and in terms of songs, uh, I mean most of these are pretty well known, but I think it's it's a it's it's a pretty solid look at the band. Uh, Cherub Rock. From Siamese Dream, uh, tonight, tonight from from Melancholy, uh, Ava Adore from Adore, uh, Stand Inside Your Love from Machina. I think Daphne Descends should be on the list too. That's five. And as long as James is pointing out great songs from Celebrity Skin, I I I, I adore Malibu. Uh, Malibu is Thank such a, yeah. fantastic that's a great song, fantastic yeah. song. I mean, fantastic that Corgan co-wrote. So go listen to Malibu too while you're at it, Jeff. Oh gosh! I mean, I guess if I have to go with my two albums, this is a tougher, tougher one than I expected it to be. But I think I'm going to go with Melancholy for all of its, you know, flaws and its bloat and its vast sprawl. I'm going to just say that it does the best at sort of achieving that, that I don't know, you know, 
perfectly personifying that teen adolescent angst that Billy Corgan was going through uh, or trying to express in his music, that coming-of-age music, um, uh, the art of an outsider, if not outsider art. And I guess the other one is going to be Adore, which uh, I think we've all discussed about. You know, it's, it's a very surprising record. It's probably the least characteristic Smashing Pumpkins record of them all. And I think you know the fact that it was so different from everything that had come before threw a lot of fans for a curveball. But I think it's a real triumph. Uh, for my five songs, gosh, oh, do I have to do this thing where I insist on naming six? <laughs> oh, geez, do I? All right. Well, maybe I will. I guess the first one I'd mention is I have to take one from their early career. I'll go with Hummer off of Siamese Dream. There are a lot of great songs on that record. I think Soma and Mayonnaise are also as good. Uh, but I like Hummer the most. I think I just love that drone, and I love the way it drops out halfway through. And, and, and it just sort of you, you get the um, the Billy the Billy Corgan sound painting you know ethos. It's just all summed up in that early guitar phase perfectly by that song. Second one, I'm going to go with Tonight Tonight. Famous, I don't care. It's Tonight Tonight. It's a great song, and it, again perfectly encapsulates that you know that hope you know and talking about like how you know tonight tonight in our city by the lake we can we can change we can be better we don't have to you know we don't have to be the people that we always were such optimism at the beginning of an album that descends to such darknesses and such such depths um my third would be galapagos which is one of the the better breakup songs of the 1990s, even though it's hard for you to to figure out that that's what it's really about. Just a beautiful song with beautiful guitars and a beautiful construction that kind of proves that, you know, in the middle of their their greatest and most pretentious work, uh, that there was a lot of beauty and whimsy that was simultaneously going on with this band and with Corgan. Uh, My third is 1979. It's the best song that they ever recorded. It's that simple. 1979 is, as we said, it's the one song that that Smashing Pumpkins will be remembered for forever, and I think justifiably so, even though it's not quite like a lot of their other songs. Speaking of two songs that aren't quite alike, uh, you know, sort of the classic pumpkin sound, the last two I'll mention uh, come from Adore. First of them is Daphne Descends, which to me is like, you know, the best aspects of uh, a, a weird fusion of the previous, you know, Billy Corgan hard rock dream pop with, uh, I guess, New Order and dance, and just a, you know, a glorious pop melody uh, that never lets your attention go for even one second. And then the final one I'll mention, this is my sixth song. This is my, my, uh, my host's privilege being invoked here. It's For Martha, which I think is one of the most beautiful songs of their career. And, of course, it's Billy's tribute to his mom, um, uh, not to Martha Wayne or to uh, uh, Martha Kent of the Batman and Superman franchises. No, this is about Martha Corgan. Um, and it's a, a, just a beautiful song of loss, love and yearning uh that couldn't be more could be further miles miles and miles away from something like siva or rhinoceros or i am one from back in the beginning of their career but corgan had it within him to do all this kind of music to do it well and i I still believe that he could have it within him to do it well today if he if he would sort of you know rein in some of his crazier ambitions and sort of refocus himself um I went from hating this band to admiring them deeply, and that's remarkable because it's one thing to come from indifference uh, towards a band to coming to appreciate them, but it's another thing to turn around and you know, let go of you know your hatred and the, you know the, the, your definition of yourself as not liking a group to become an actual fan of theirs. And I, and I have to say, right now at this point, I am definitely a fan of the Smashing Pumpkins.
are the Political Beats look at the career of smashing pumpkins. We thank our guest, the executive editor of The American Mind, author of The Art of Being Free, and lead singer-songwriter for the band Vast Asteroid. Find him on Twitter at James Polis, P-O-U-L-O-S. James, thanks so much for coming back with us on Political Beats. Always a pleasure, guys. Thank you. Jeff, a little, uh, little time off in between episodes here, but it feels good to be back in the swing. Sven, great to be back in the saddle. Let's uh, try not to make people wait too long again. At EsotericCD on Twitter. My name is Scott Bertram. You find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. And the show at Political underscore Beats. Please subscribe to our feed for new episodes. Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, NationalReview.com. You can find them there, too. Listen, leave reviews, and share them with your friends. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.